podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Welcome along to the second part of this edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast, the interview with Mike Selvey, part two, to come in just a few seconds' time. And at the end of this podcast, you'll also hear the submission from Luke Dunning, the five-minute piece about confused selection in international teams. Luke is the analyst at Sussex CCC, so he's not a student journalist, but as I say, it's open to any of you. If you want to get something off your chest... Then record it, bang it across to me on cricketbadger at hotmail.com. And if it's broadcastable and you can argue your case, I will put it on a future edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. But if you've enjoyed part one of the interview with Mike Selvey, well, you'll enjoy part two because more of the same. Some really good insights in this part about his time in the game and also his time on Test Match Special as well. So let's stop waffling about it. Let's hear from him instead. Here's the second part of the Cricket Badger podcast with Mike Selvey. It's that Badger style. What was Mike Brewer like as a captain? I mean, he's obviously famous for that 1981 series where he came in and uh, and, and yeah. uh, England rose from the ashes. But as a general county captain, was he was he as impressive? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think the perception is different to the reality. I think the the perception is of this master kind of Stengali figure who you know ran out of things and moved people around and did these things, and that's that's not the reality of his reality was uh, of having a, a huge man management skills um, that was able to bring together uh, disparate groups of people and, and get them into a, into a team environment, very different people, you know, and also to recognise that if you've got a good bowling attack, then you, you're in the game. We were very lucky at Middlesex, and in fact, in England, he was pretty lucky too, you know, it, um, you think about at England level, you, you've got Botham, Willis, Underwood, Embury. You know, you've got you've got bowlers of that calibre. You don't lose control of game so readily, and that was the case in Middlesex. And when you've got experienced bowlers like Fred or like Philip or like Embers or like uh, Vince or like Wayne or myself, you tend not to have to tell them what to do. They know what to do, so everything's done through through the captain. Um, you, you know your strategies. You, you know what you're going to be trying to do to batsmen. We, we knew that we didn't have the volume of data on players now, but you, you, you built up your own memory bank and you built up your own way of, of um, assessing players. You could look at a player and say, I think he's going to be this sort of a player. You know, he might be a little bloke who holds it down the bottom. You, you're going to bet your life he's not a cover driver of the ball. He's going to be a cutter and a puller, that sort of thing, you know. As you work these things out for yourself and you set you set your strategy to call it that and he is sensible enough to to know that you go with that and then if things aren't quite working out you might implant an idea into somebody, should we try this? Yeah, what do you think? Okay, we'll go with that. Or no, I don't think I'll go with that. I'd like to carry on with this. Okay, we'll do that. So you you know, that's how that's that was the dynamic. Um and and that's a little bit against what people's perception of it is. But that, but that was the reality of it for me, anyway. What was your worst moment in cricket? I don't think I ever had a worst moment. I had 
most disappointing moment thing actually increased for me, thing, not moment particularly. When I went to Glenorgan, um, I went to Glenorgan in 1983 as, as captain, and I don't think I was really prepared for the sort of a culture shock, if you like, of going from a very successful county that was used to winning games to somewhere where they had quite low expectations and was hugely under-resourced in, in, in many aspects. You know, if I, if I tell you that I went to a county that didn't have a single grass practice pitch. Really? You know, and, no. And I didn't, and I didn't know when I was going, any, any of this was happening. You know, I, and I, I felt slightly bereft. I, I wasn't prepared for that. And I really regret not being better at what I did down there. And I think in hindsight, you know, wonderful thing, isn't it? 2020 hindsight. But I, I, I certainly would have approached it differently. Because there were good players there, and and they were they were good players who weren't being, being given the best opportunity to be good players, to be recognised as good players, and I didn't feel that ultimately I was able to to help that. And you know, I'll give you I'll give you an example of something I really do regret. And within that um, within that atmosphere there, right, I had two overseas players. Now, when I went down there, when I when I was asked to go down there. We we had two overseas players, which were Javed Meander and Ezra Mosley. Right. And what happened was Ezra um, got a stress fractures before the season, so Ezra had to couldn't come. So we had recruit another was we recruited Winston Davis, which is fine, except that the uh, Teston County Cricket Board, as it was then, had decided there was a moratorium on overseas players, and if you signed a, a new player after a certain date, you could only play one of your two overseas players, which meant that, that as it turned out, the Morgan was the only county that could only play one overseas player. Everybody else could play two. That sounds a bit harsh. Uh, which, which was an, absurd, an absurdity. Yeah. And, and an absurdity that I asked the, the club to challenge and they wouldn't do it. So fundamentally, I had to pick in my side Winston Davis, who was you know a, an up-and-coming young boy. He did play for West Indies. Or one of the top probably four or five best players I ever saw in my life. Oh, Javon Meander was Meander. class, wasn't he? Yeah, absolute <laughs> class. Oh, he was, he was an astonishing player. All too often, which had been a no-brainer, but all too often I got kind of railroaded, if you like, browbeaten into the idea that, that they were so used to my players to getting people coming at them with firepower that I picked Winston instead of Jarvid. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine leaving one of the greatest players in the history of the game out of his side for that reason? Um, My mind boggles as to why I even entertain that idea and how Jarvid felt about that. Oh, goodness only knows. So I do regret that very much. You had about 18 months there, didn't you? And then your your injuries caught up with you. Well, it wasn't wasn't an injury. That was was dressed up. I, I, I left the club. I had enough. Well, I was going to ask you actually. The was was there a motivation to battle through injury because you were? No. Yeah, that, no. that, that was what I was going to. No, I, I, I was just getting. I, I had a very very poor relationship with the club chairman. That was a, that was a fact of the matter. And uh, and in the end, I, I thought, I'm, you know, I'm, what am I now? I'm 36 years old, and I, I just don't need this hassle anymore. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. This is why I'd like my career to end. But that's uh, that's how it was. There's not many people get to choose, aren't there, really? No. <laughs> I was choosing the wrong way, though, isn't it? Yeah. Who was your cricket hero when you were a kid? Probably Brian Stapen. And did you model yourself on him, then, in the back garden? Mm, I, I rather liked his temperament, you see. That's what, that's what, rather, that's what I like. Because you know, there, there were the two. I, I, I don't know why 
I always thought of him as the underdog in the in the partnership that he, that he had with with Truman, for example. <laughs> um, Fred was always you know, the flashy one that, that everybody liked, and, and Brian was the faithful workhorse who, who was just brilliant, just hammered away and was brilliant. I, I rather liked that idea, and so I quite I quite I couldn't model myself on him though, but. Although I, I suspect there's never been a bowler born who didn't think he'd modelled himself on somebody and looked just like him, you know. No, actually, he didn't look a bit like him, just felt like him. But I've always believed that it's a, it's a good idea for any aspiring bowlers in particular to try and pick out the best aspects of bowlers that they watch and incorporate them into their game. They don't have to look like them and incorporate those ideas into, the, into their game, you know. Be it, it might be run-up, it might be a steady head, it might be, you know, all those little... Little things that you can take out of other people's games. A little bit of Brian I, I, Statham's I, I, never going to do you any harm, is it? No, no. I mean, <laughs> you know, he was a fantastic bowler, and, and uh, I think what I most admired about him was was just persistence. Really, you know, that he could just hammer out a length, just hammer it away. You know, and you, if, if you can do that, there's you know, there's been some great bowlers whose whole mo was based on just banging out a length. Glenn McGrath, you know, quite possibly one of the greatest defensive bowlers the game's ever seen. He'd tell you that himself, you know, he didn't, he, he didn't attack, he just bowled, he banged out a length and it did enough and it bounced and he got bounced and he got wickets. It's, uh, it's not uh, difficult to see that, but uh, difficult to do. If you could trade lives for a day with any current player, you can live in their skin, have their talent, have their life for 24 hours, who would you pick? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. I'm going to divide this into two 12 hours, right? I'll, I'll have 12 hours of Virat Kohli just so I can double my career earnings in, uh, in, in half a day. So I'll, I'll take that. The other half, I'll have Jimmy Anderson. Okay. Because I was very good at doing something and I'd look, quite like to know what it'd be like to be an absolute genius at doing what I did very well. So I'll take Jimmy Anderson. And, and that way you get to be the best batsman in the world, arguably, and then arguably the best bowler as well, don't you? In, the, in the space of 24 hours. I, I hear ka first up and then, uh, uh, and then I could, I could uh, have the ball on a string. The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look. And give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. I'm going to put you, Mike Selvey, in charge of world cricket. Your name's on the door. You've got the big chair. What would you do with world cricket to make it better? Now, you will... will recognise the perpetual, and I go round and round in circles trying to explain this to people, right? Why don't they call no balls anymore? Why don't they call tight no balls? Mm. You know, are they blind? Shouldn't the third umpire do this? And I say to people time and time again, there's a solid reason why umpires will not call tight no balls in DRS games, only in DRS games. And that is because they don't have the recourse to reverse a decision where they called a no ball and it brings a wicket and they can't reverse that decision, right? And it came to prominence, really, in, in one day in Wellington when Adam Voges was bowled by the last ball of the day. It was given not out, it was signalled a no ball, and they discovered subsequently that it, that it wasn't a no ball and that he should have been out. And he got, I think, seven at the time, and he got 230. Um, and that's clearly a nonsense when you can overturn decisions the other way around. So umpires will not call close no balls because they know that if it's a, a no ball, if they, if they don't call a no ball and it is a no ball and it brings a wicket, that can be reviewed and changed. But they can't do it the other way around. So they don't want to make that other mistake. They don't want to do an Adam Bose. So they won't call the tight no balls. And it's fairly straightforward to me that if you review 
every wicket or potential wicket for a no ball, then that gets rid of that. And they were willing to call the tight no balls. It seems straightforward to me, but they need to change that protocol. And they haven't changed that protocol. And I don't know if they will change that protocol, but they should do. So that that's that's what I would do with world cricket at the moment. It's a small thing. Makes a lot of sense as well. And, that, and it's another small thing from no balls. But I, I mean, a lot of test matches can be quite one-sided. But some, some, something like Headingley last year when England just about managed to get across the line with Ben Stokes' heroics. If, there, if yeah. every single no ball in that game had been called, it might have been a different mm. outcome, wouldn't it? Because it can change matches, can't it? You know, there, some teams bowl oh, far more they? no balls it, than the other team. Yeah, yeah. It can, all these, yes, these things can of course they can. I mean, you can go back and the miss of time and find things that, you know, if this had happened, would have been DRS or, you know, um, you know, everybody talks about that edge baston game, you know, where Kasparovic shouldn't have been given out because he'd taken his hand off the bat and Australia should have won the game. But there was a an LBW shout about 30 runs before that. It was absolutely plumb. It wasn't, you couldn't review either. The game, in fact, with uh, been DRS, the game would have been over probably an hour earlier. So, you know, it, it, it swings and roundabouts on that, I guess. But you're right. I, I feel sorry for umpires with no balls because, you know, they talk about these tight no balls. If you look how far back they now stand, not least for safety reasons, and then you think the angle they have to look at, at a line that is often, you know, it's painted in with a paintbrush, often been scarred and marked and, and uh, footholds and all that sort of thing in there. Um, see that, and they're being asked to make decisions that are scrutinised to the millimetre by TV cameras now, or by review cameras from side on. They're being asked to make decisions on that. I think is is, is wholly unfair. And you could argue that maybe they should have a third umpire or fourth umpire making making all these no ball calls, and perhaps it'll come to that one day. You know, I I, I sympathise immensely with them, and also you know you think they're looking at the front line, that then they've got to see where the ball where the ball pitches. They've also got to look at the back foot, incidentally, where it hits, where it goes on, all those things in four-fifths of a second often. Yeah. If I was an umpire standing in a test match and I knew there were 24 cameras around the ground from every angle, I would prefer to get castigated for not calling a no ball than making a real big error of judgment on an important dismissal. I can see why they do it. Yeah, absolutely. They, 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 they know that it's easy for them to not call a no ball, knowing that they can get overturned. You know, they, they, they know that if they make a mistake that way, mm. they'll get criticised, but, but it will get overturned. And they generally, if it's a big noble, they, they generally do call it as well. In games that don't have DRS and counter games and that, they, they, they operate in an entirely different system. They'll call nobles that they see. It's, uh, it's quite straightforward. So I think that's, you know, that really needs addressing. I'm conscious of time here, Mike, because I'm enjoying your chat so much. We've only got to question number nine. We, we need to get cracking. Um, if you could have been famous doing something completely different, what would you have chosen to do? I've got a collection of guitars, you see. I probably had a handicap, a golf handicap, like a guitar handicap. I don't know, probably a bit better. High single figures, probably. Okay. I'll see you can play. Nine, nine, yeah. nine, right? So not too, not too bad. I've never played in a band or anything like that. So I quite like that idea. I'd like, I'd, yeah, I could, be, I could be like a big guitar hero without the drugs, but I keep the chicks. Is that all right? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm brought up on on the Who and Jimi Hendrix, and uh, no, those are the bands of my, those are the bands of my and blues bands of my John Mayle and Fleetwood, early Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that. That's, that, that. that's the stuff of my, really of my youth. So uh, we, we were talking about the hair well, earlier. You need the hair from your early playing days for that, don't you? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could meet anybody, living or dead, who would you like to meet and have a have a chat with for a bit, pick their brains? 
it's a fact that I never travel anywhere without the complete works of John Beckton. Why? I have absolutely no idea. Um, I just really like the works of John Beckton. And that is my, that is my perpetual companion. Funny enough, I, the last few years of my life, I actually um, enjoyed some correspondence with his daughter, quite unknowingly at first, but unknowingly it was his daughter at first, and then I, then I tweaked. And that was, that was quite revealing because she wrote some, um, published loads of his letters at one time. But I really, I, yeah, I think I could have, um, I would have enjoyed some conversations there. And, and, and also the, you know, a lot of the great work that he did in terms of preservation, you know, he, I mean, John Betjeman is responsible for the restoration of St. Pancras Station, for example, into the, oh, you know, the right? Gothic. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. If you go into St. Pancras Station, you'll see a statue in there. Looking up. You know, it, 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 it's quite spectacular. And uh, yeah, he's my, he's my constant companion. If ever I play golf at St. Enidoc, which I haven't done for a few years now, but St. Enidoc always nip off the fairway into the churchyard there and pay my respects to him in St. Enidoc Church. They're going to make Selv the movie. Steven Spielberg <laughs> is on the phone. He wants your advice about who should play you in that aforementioned who should play movie. Me? Yep. Yes, I thought of this. I mean, probably in the early years, probably you'd have to be Brad Pitt or something like that, wouldn't it? That'd be some <laughs> exceptional good looking. Latter years, Patrick Stewart, I think. <laughs> the bill. Good answer. So I was once coming out of, a, out of a tube station and there was a big issue seller saw me come out and he shouted across the street to people. He said, yeah, it's that bloke from Star Trek. <laughs> and, uh, and somebody said, well, stop. So that'd be Patrick Stewart in later years. But, uh, you know, some, somebody unbelievably handsome, good-looking and fit in the younger years, I fancy. What's the last time you can remember feeling really nervous? Are, are you a nervous kind of character? You don't strike me as being. I was never, I'm never nervous playing cricket, obviously enough. No, I never, you never was. Uh, if you want an honest answer, that is when uh, it's, it's, it's about two months ago when my uh, one of my sons rang us up and told us he'd uh, he got corona symptoms, uh, and, and and that really did make me nervous. And him is he okay? Uh, yeah, he's all right. Now. Good stuff. He, 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 he did, didn't have them for too long, couple of days, but that wasn't very pleasant. What's the top item on your bucket list? Things to do before you die. What's number one? My daughter has been in China since last September. We were supposed to, my wife and I were supposed to go out and see her and to, and to do some hidden parts of China, if you like. recall it that, some, not, not the mainstream, not the Great Wall and stuff like that, I'm not interested in that, but the, some other parts of China, and we were going to go out there and, uh, and do that in March, and we had to cancel that, and she's still in China, and uh, I don't know if she's going to stay there, she, likes, she really likes where she is, and where she is. So, so I'd really quite like to be able to go and do that. Are you a morning or a night person? Oh, I'm definitely morning, definitely morning. Especially this time of year, I'm usually awake about five. I take the dog out about five thirty. I love early morning summer. There's just nothing like it. Uh, in contrast, we go to bed very early. Usually in bed, usually sleep by about quarter past ten. Okay. So uh, yeah, I'm. I think that makes me a morning person. Doesn't I, I think that qualifies you. On a scale of one <laughs> to ten, ten's the fonds. How cool would you say you are? Oh, I go to eleven. <laughs> You've broken the record. I'm Nigel Tufnell. <laughs> there was a 10 the other day, but you've, got now, you've now extended it. It's 11. Um, oh, um, I go to 11, yeah. <laughs> if you had access to a time machine, where and when would you drive it to? You can go forwards, you can go backwards. Well, well I wouldn't want to go forwards. Uh, that's absolutely certain. I, I, I really, really don't want to know what's going to happen in the future. I think I'd be absolutely horrified, to be honest with you. This all depends on whether I can go back and change things. You see, this is this is you're starting to get into you're in, you're in uh, the moral maze, are territory. Yeah. I know, I know. Uh, if you just mean as an observer, 
in, in crickety terms. I, probably, I quite like to see the Middlesex Summer of 47 actually be really real fun to watch Compton maybe it's getting all those runs. That would be good. I quite like that. And see some of the players then of the time. If I could change something, I think I'd quite like to go back about three years knowing what we know now. Yes, yes. And, uh, and change that. That would be that would be a pretty cool thing to do as well. But I don't think we're going to be able to do that, are we? Unfortunately not. I don't actually have the time machine to give you, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I, if you do find it, I, I wouldn't mind coming back with you to the, uh, the, the summer of 1947, sit at Lords in the Sunshine. Happy, that sounds okay to me. Yeah. It was an astonishing summer, and um, Andy Ball, a former colleague of mine, The Guardian, wrote a really lovely piece a couple of weeks ago about that summer. But I, well, I, I wasn't quite alive then. Um, but <clears throat> I think what people don't understand is the is the dreadful immediate post-war, but also the the appalling winter that preceded it, with floods and uh, you know tremendous austerity and deprivation, and uh, say so there were all immediate post-war problems and. And suddenly, this glorious summer with, with the, the, the people could go out and flood to the to the creek. It was almost like a relief from them. So, yeah, that would have been pretty good to see that. I think. Hopefully, we'll have one of those of our own soon, if that's if that's possible. <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. So you won't be flood to watch it with. <laughs> if you could live anywhere in the world, I mean, you've seen a lot of the world. You've done TMS. You've been around the around the globe covering the cricket. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? I'll be New Zealand. It's my second home. Really. You go back to 2004, we were within a hair's breadth of emigrating. I had enough of a lot of things and we were going to go and we didn't go in the end. But I still have pretty near my best friends are in New Zealand. Uh, and it's a country I love very, very dearly. Around, um, about, around about 2004 when you were thinking about it, my best mate who I was best man for, he did exactly that. And him and his wife live in he? New Zealand now and he drives me mad on on Facebook telling me how fantastic it is all the time. I'd, I'd, have, I'd have been very happy there. I last I last went there just um, January last year. And I went out for three weeks on my own just to see some mates and to hang out and play a bit of golf and that. And it's, it's just an astonishing country. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm so envious. If I had gone, of course, you know, I would have missed out on an awful lot of good things that happened to me in my life subsequently. So there's that, there's that balance. But um, it, is, it is a country I, I, I love very much, yeah. So that's what happens if you have that time machine. You go back and change one thing and then everything else changes as well, doesn't it? You're never quite sure what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. If you could change one thing about yourself, Mike Selvey, what would you change? I think I would have liked faster twitch muscles. I think if uh, the, the skills I had as a bowler, if I'd have had an extra yard and a half of pace, you know, that, that would have elevated my game hugely. So I love that, faster twitch muscles. What will you be doing in 10 years' time? Ten years' time, I tell you what I'd like to be doing. I'd like to be fit and healthy and in possession of all my faculties and eighty-two years old. Do you, do you get to see a lot of cricket now? Do you go to the go to games and sit in the sunshine? Well, I do because in my capacity as president of Middlesex, I'm, I've seen an awful lot of cricket. Or I did last year. I haven't seen much this year. No, it's changed, um, changed in role a bit, hasn't it? That, from year well, to year. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of um, rejuvenated me um, in terms of cricket because. I stopped um, working for the Guardian in, in 19, uh, sorry, 2016, uh, wasn't it? So I've had almost, you know, like 45 years probably in the, in the game from when I first started playing um, at top level. I started in 1968 playing first-class cricket and all those summers with, with nothing but cricket in my life and then suddenly not to have it. And 
And going back to Middlesex, especially in the capacity I am now, it's not just a great privilege. It's reinvigorated my my love for the club and for the game. And it's been an absolute joy and a privilege. Hopefully I'll be able to do, do it for a little while longer yet. They've extended Kuma Sangakara's MCC presidency only for another year, so you'll, you maybe get another 20 yeah, to 12 well, months. you never know, do you? You never know. You never know. <laughs> well, that, that was question uh, number 19. We've got a question number 20 to come, but before we do that, I just want to slip one more in about TMS and working. You, you said introduced to it by Peter yeah. Baxter, went to India. What, what was that like? Because you'd have worked with some fantastic commentators, with some fantastic names from cricket. Yeah, yeah it was, um, you know, they were great commentators. You know, Martin Jenkins, obviously, and Brian Johnston. You know, we had a slightly um, ambivalent relationship, but he was a brilliant, brilliant broadcaster. Martin Jenkins, Agnew, you know, the, the Henry. They, they, these, these are great, skilled broadcasters, and to and you know to to sit and see how they work and how they, you know, they they could the use of words, the use of language, and the use of props. Sometimes how they used to identify people and. All the all these things were, were just an education for me to, to sit and watch and uh, uh, and listen to them and to learn how to fulfil the role that I had as a summariser around them. You know, it was uh, uh, it was oh my goodness me, I did have some good time doing that. I, I had Dan Norcross on. He's been on the podcast a few times actually, but the uh, yeah, he, he talked about his first stint on TMS when he had to sit next to boycott and uh, he was kind of. Pinching himself, thinking I'm here, a bit nervous, a bit excited. And what was your first kind of session behind the mic like? Were you, did you have some nerves because you kind of realised that TMS was quite a big institution? Um, the first game I did was abroad. It was in India on that, um, that tour I mentioned before, where I went off to India for, for a couple of weeks, and uh, so it was the the '84 test in Mumbai. Commentators then were that so, so the, what you might call the gun commentators didn't go abroad then, unless they were working for a newspaper. So Commentators then were people like Tony Lewis and uh, uh, Mike Carey, who was the Cricket uh, Cosmo at the Daily Telegraph. And, you know, they were the people I did. I don't, I don't recall ever being intimidated by the prospect that there were people listening because, they, because they're invisible, you see. You don't see them. Although you're talking to, who knows, millions sometimes. I, I understand um, that. Like, I, I understand that part, Mike. I can understand because I've I've done radio commentary, and yeah. you're, you're just talking to the microphone to the guy next to you. But it, yeah. was, it was more a question about TMS and the the image you've got of TMS of it being a staple of English summer and the fact that it is a big bastion yeah. of English cricket, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's something that's held in in huge affection, isn't it, by the cricket loving population? It's what keeps a lot of people in touch with the game. You know, we sometimes we we um, I, I think probably when the emails first started. We used to ask for people to email him where they were listening, you know, and we got some extraordinary places. Yeah. Scott Base in Antarctica and people like, I think Mugabe used to listen to TMS <laughs> when he was in prison. I mean, it's, he, he I'm told that he, he actually was pretty knowledgeable about cricket okay. and, and that's what he got from listening for the TMS. I, d- I don't know um, if you heard, I, I listened to a lot of the World Cup um, on, on TMS and the, Aggers was collecting countries. Like you've said, they were emailing in saying, I'm in Nigeria, and he was just ticking them off the yeah. world map. And just, I think he pretty much got yeah. every single country in the world by the end of it. Yes, you see, you know, now when you when you put it like that and you see the, the, the reach of it now, um, and it probably, you know, probably reaches, a, you know, slightly less crackly now to uh, other parts of the world. It is quite, um, I suppose that ought to be intimidating that you're speaking, but you're still only talking to people aren't you about mm. the game and 
you know, and and if you if you know the game and you love the game and you've watched the game a lot, and that, it's not difficult to talk about cricket, is it really? Talking rubbish about cricket, you could do it for hours, couldn't you? It's, it's, and it's a pleasure to do it as well. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the Cricket Budget Podcast today. I've, oh, I've it was really, great fun. It really enjoyed it. Away. There's one more question left, and this is one that uh, some people find difficult. If you've been picking these questions yourself and you've been interviewing yourself, Selvi on Selvi, what would you have asked yourself <laughs> to get a great and exclusive <laughs> answer? You might, you might not get an answer about it. I think I'd, I think I'd say, are those, those rumours, are they really true? <laughs> Yes or no? Just just one one of those words to finish us off. Yes or no? Were they true? I say, well, that's for that's for you to wonder and me to know. <laughs> Mike Savvy, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, all the best. Hopefully, you get back to uh, Lords and you, and resume your presidency soon. Well, thanks, thanks a lot. It's been it's been great fun. I love I love the questions. I really want to get this off my chest because there seems to be an obsession with elite teams with the power to select absolutely anyone. So you've got international teams, franchise teams who could pick anyone and they keep finding a way to put batters in positions where they've never batted before. So what I call it is square pegs in round holes, that common phrase. And I can't can't get my head around it. Look, I'm going to kind of speak about English cricket first because I'm an England fan. I follow everything England do. So when they do it, it frustrates me the most. The first point is obviously Jason Roy in the Test Match Summer. Brilliant one-day opener, brilliant T20 opener. But they decide to open with him in Test Match Cricket, which on the basis of a statistical point of view isn't actually that bad. Um, he scored... 823 runs at an average of around 32 county championship cricket outside of that 3681 runs at 36.48 from 101 innings so really not that much difference but to ask him to come into the test match arena against Stark Cummins Hazelwood in a completely alien role just seems bonkers to me and then they proceed to call up Dominic Sibley and Zach Crawley in the in the winter blood them in straight away why set Jason Roy up to fail what they could have done is put Denley at the top of the order bat Jason Roy in the middle and might have been a different story but they've set him up to fail it was someone who could have been in my opinion an elite test match batter by batting him in completely the wrong position it's not the only time they've done that either in the last 12 months look at Tom Banton making his ODI debut at number six obviously before that Banton only played 18 games, I think he batted 17 times in that. When he opens, he averages 41. When he doesn't open, he averages 11. So why are you batting him in the middle order when he's done so well at the top of the order? Why, when you've got an experienced lineup of Roy, Bairstow, Root, Morgan, why can't you just move them all down one and put Banton in it to open the batting? Why can't you give one of the biggest talents that England's got a nice, comfortable way into the side by batting him in the familiar position that he's batted for the last 12 to 18 months for his county it's just beyond me also must be frustrating for players on the other side of the spectrum who actually bat in that position they see opening batters come in to the side at number six people like Ben Folks who scored 
probably 1,200 runs in the last four seasons. Liam Dawson bats at five for Hampshire. He's averaging 50 at number five. So you've got these players that do that role season in, season out for their counties and you're putting in a guy who's done so well opening the batting and ex- expecting him to come into international cricket and do a completely different job. The last one is one that flummocks me all the time. You've got Joe Denley in the T20 side batting at five or six. Before Joe Denley played for England, he's never batted below four. So why is he batting five or six? I just don't I just don't understand it. You've got a guy who's batted 128 innings out of his 146 career innings at the top of the order. And he's deployed as England's five or six. Can't get my head around it. I know there's a, there's a few anomalies. You've got Bairstow who'd only opened twice for Yorkshire before he opened for England ODIs. Butler only opened six times before he opened for England T20 cricket. But these players are obviously exceptional talents and they'd obviously had a lot of experience in the international arena before they made the move to different positions. But what I'm speaking about is bringing players in fresh from domestic cricket or franchise cricket and you're putting them straight into the mix at a completely alien position. It's just something that I can't get my head around. Thanks to Luke Dunning for his submission. It's probably going to get me into trouble because I I spent half of my time tweeting about Jason Roy and Joss Butler being in wrong positions and not selected in the right way for the England side. I've just kind of got over that really and then Luke's brought it all back up again. But I think he's right and uh, thank you for him to sending that in. If anybody else, particularly student journalists out there, want to send in their submissions... Five minutes, be as creative as you want, as long as you can argue your case and it's on cricket. It can be one voice, it can be more than one voice. You can do a little mini interview if you want to and I'll uh, stick it on, I'll name you and you can use that in your CV as you take your career forward. Put it this way, it won't do you any harm. Thank you very much indeed to Mike Selvey for joining me on this two-parter on the Cricket Badger podcast. As I said at the start of the pod, he's somebody that I hold in high esteem as a broadcaster and as a journalist and no mean player as well. Real pleasure to talk to Mike Selvey on this edition of the podcast. If you like it, please like it. If you want to subscribe to it, then tick that box as well. And if you can leave us a nice comment on the Cricket Badger podcast, then that would be massively appreciated. Plenty more great guests to come over the next few weeks on the Cricket Badger Podcast. So stay tuned. I've been James and I'll see you next time on the Cricket Badger Podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.